We're continuing this uh, spiritual journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we are moving ahead into Matthew chapter 6. Now keep in mind that there's far more in these passages than we can cover in four or five weeks. So we're not able to hit every single topic uh, that you find in the Sermon on the Mount. There's simply too much material. For example, uh, after Jesus talks about anger in chapter 5, he talks about adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. Lust leads to adultery. A quick observation about adultery. Adultery seems to happen most when couples quit making their relationship a priority. It happens when somebody feels neglected or ignored or taken for granted and then they turn somewhere else to get that attention and we could do an entire sermon or sermon series on that topic but we're not going to do that this time now after adultery jesus talks about divorce the giving of alms prayer he gives us what we call the lord's prayer the one that we pray every week uh, and uh, if you haven't been able to develop a prayer life for some reason i would challenge you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. And when you pray it, pay attention to the words that you're saying. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You see, if we just say these words, but we don't actually mean them, if they're just words that we spout off, but it's not on our heart, then it's pointless. These words need to matter. And prayer makes a difference in our lives. But we will never know that. We will never know that until we pray on a regular basis. Now today we are moving on to two topics in Matthew chapter 6 that are both very, very important. Money and worry. And they just happen to be related and they just happen to fall back to back in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me ask you a question this morning. Why do you think Jesus talked about money and possession so often? Why is it in the Sermon on the Mount? Why is it in so many of the parables? Why was this one of his favorite subjects? He wasn't trying to raise money for the church. He wasn't trying to raise money for a capital campaign. He wasn't uh, trying to raise money for some other reason. So why did he talk about this subject so much? Why was it one of his go-to topics when it came to his teachings? Let me give you three quick answers to that question. The first is everybody has to deal with money. It's a universal reality. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. We all have to deal with it on a regular basis, and Jesus knew that. Secondly, Jesus knew that money is the idol of choice for so many people. I've always been haunted by the words of Frederick Nietzsche, a guy who lived in the second half of the 19th century. He was very hostile towards Christianity and towards morality, but once he said this, he predicted that for many in the Western world, money would replace God. 
And if you look around in the culture, you would have to agree and say he's right when it pertains to many people. Third, Jesus knew that money and everything related to money would be the greatest source of worry and stress and tension in our lives. And he was right. And it's why I believe that we find this particular sequence of teachings in Matthew's gospel. Money, fear, and worry go hand in hand. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says, a timeless truth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now think about how true that statement is. Heart follows treasure. Treasure doesn't always follow heart. Look at where you spend your money on a regular basis, and that will tell you what matters most in your life. Do you pay a mortgage? Your home matters. Do you pay a car note? Your car matters. Do you pay or save for your kids' education? What they are learning and that they are learning matters. Uh, you buy lots of new clothes? How you look matters. You go out to eat a lot? Having good meals matter. You give money to a political candidate? Politics matters. You give money to the church? Hopefully, the church and its ministries matter. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's possible to care about a lot of things but not support them with your money. But it's simply impossible to support things with your money and to not care about them, to not have your heart invested in them. And Jesus made this abundantly clear. Now, let's talk about worry. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. He says, can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your span of life? Why do we worry so much? Why do we spend so much of our time and energy worrying about things, many of the things of which we cannot control? I read a, uh, a fascinating piece a number of years ago in psychology today that answered this question, why do we worry? I think it, it, it answers it succinctly. This author said this, we fear the future, the unknown. We worry about what will happen to us, our family, our spouse, our business, our, our money, our home, our possessions, our country, the world. We live in a universe which is inherently unpredictable, dangerous and deadly. Indeed, anxiety can be understood as an acute or subliminal awareness of life's insecurity and the ever-present possibility and absolute inevitability of death. And so much of what we worry about has to do with losing what we have, our health, our happiness, love, wealth, power, status, wisdom, freedom, independence, support, vitality, and ultimately life itself. Existential anxiety, this person said, is a recognition, either conscious or unconscious, that life is finite, existence is tenuous, and that all or what little we have can be taken from us. 
at any given moment. And so that's why we worry. But we know it's not healthy. We know that it accomplishes very little. So the question has always been, what can we do to stop worrying, or at least what can we do to reduce our level of worrying? Because all of us, I think, this morning would agree that worry is exhausting, it's tiring, and according to Jesus, it's pointless. So I have four thoughts to give you this morning on how we can reduce the amount of worry in our lives. I'm not sure it's possible to eliminate it, but I think it is possible to reduce it, to take it down, uh, to, to, to decrease it. The first answer to this question, how can we reduce our, our worry, is this. You've got to first know yourself. What does that mean? You must gain a basic understanding of the things that make you worry the most. Because usually we worry about the same things over and over again. Over the past few years, I've found the Enneagram to be an incredibly helpful tool in this process. And I'm going to tell you this morning that Wednesday night, we're starting another three-week series on the Enneagram with Hunter Mobley. It's called the, uh, the A Christian Approach to the Enneagram. But just to give you a refresher, let me give you a quick snapshot of what the Enneagram is. It's a nine-point personality typing system. Everybody has one number, even though you can uh, have wings or uh, you might say, yeah, I'm this number, but I'm also this number. Type one is called the perfectionist. Ethical, dedicated, reliable. They're motivated by a desire to live the right way, to improve the world, avoid fault and blame. And the one's deadly sin is anger that often manifests itself in resentment. Type two, the helper. Warm, caring, and giving. They are motivated by a need to be loved and needed and to avoid acknowledging their own needs. Twos wrestle with pride. Type three, the performer. Success-oriented, image-conscious, and wired for productivity. They are motivated by a need to be or to appear to be successful and to avoid failure. They crave achievement and success. Their deadly sin is deceit. Not deceit of others, but deceit of themselves, that they are what they accomplish. There's an insert in your bulletin this morning if you want to uh, follow this a little bit. Type four, the romantic, creative, sensitive, and moody. They're motivated by a need to be understood, to experience their oversized feelings, and to avoid being ordinary. Their deadly sin is envy. Type five, the investigator. Analytical, detached, and private. They're motivated by a need to gain knowledge, to conserve energy, and to avoid relying on others. Their deadly sin is avarice. Type six, the loyalist, worst case scenario thinkers who are always motivated by fear and a need for security. Sixes need to hear this sermon this morning. Their deadly sin is fear. Um, type seven, the enthusiast, fun, spontaneous, adventurous, motivated by a need to be happy, uh, to plan stimulating experiences. Their deadly sin is gluttony. They devour and consume positive experiences. Type eight, the challenger, commanding, intense, and confrontational. We are motivated by a need to be strong and to avoid feeling weak or vulnerable. And eights are often known to be leaders, but we live life with high intensity, and our deadly sin is lust, lust for control. And nines are peacemakers, 
pleasant, laid-back, accommodating, motivated by a need to keep the peace, merge with others, and avoid conflict, and their deadly sin is sloth. Now, here's what I promise you about the Enneagram. If you take the time to try to figure out what your number is, I promise you it will, one, give you a better understanding of yourself, and two, help you understand the things that you need to work on as it pertains to your spiritual life and to your spiritual journey. And that's what I found in recent years. My second answer to the question this morning after first you have to know yourself. How do we reduce our worry in life? We have to learn to be grateful. We have to learn to cultivate a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. Not just in November, but all the time. One theologian once said, there are two different types of people in life. Those who are grateful and those who aren't. And those who are grateful are able to look around and count their blessings and identify their blessings. Uh, On Thursday, I went with a a member and a friend of this church, Wilbur Sensing, he's here this morning, Uh, went down to the National Rescue Mission. Wilbur's been very involved down there. We met with the director and with some of the folks, and I got a a detailed, thorough tour of the Nashville Rescue Mission, which was, uh, I've been there before a couple of times, but I've never been through that entire facility. And what's happening down there is amazing because the homeless are being fed and housed, lives are being put back together, but it's impossible to go to a place like the Rescue Mission and to go on a tour like that and to not acknowledge uh, the, the many blessings that you have in your own life. If we're ungrateful, we will never be satisfied and we will always want more, more, more. And our culture is always telling us that we need more, 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 that we deserve more, 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 but gratitude reduces our anxiety and it lowers our levels of fear. Uh, gratitude is a mindset that is so important. And and I promise you, if you can practice being grateful, then your worry and anxiety will decrease. Third, we must learn to differentiate between the things that we can control and the things that we can't control. And here's a hint. The list of things that you can't control is much longer than the things that you can control. Uh, Richard Rohr says, as we get older, we tend to become control freaks. But here's the truth. There are lots of things that are out of our control. And so you know what really leads to worry? What leads to worry is when we try to control the things that are outside of our control. That'll drive us nuts. And we do it all the time. What does the serenity prayer say? If you've been to 12-step meetings or you're familiar with it, what does it say? It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And one of the ways that I think we give control over to God is through prayer. Somebody sent me a quote this week. It said, pray and let God do the worry. That's pretty good, right? One of the greatest secrets of life is to surrender. Not not to give up, not to stop trying, but to surrender certain things. Lastly, fourth response to this question, how can we reduce our worry in life, reduce our fear, 
is that we must trust God and live life one day at a time. What does Jesus say in the last verse of this passage, Matthew 6, 34? He says, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring trouble of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Somebody said this week, they said, isn't that bad news? Tomorrow will bring trouble of its own? No, it's just reality that, that every day will bring its challenges. But we can only take those challenges on one day at a time. So plan for tomorrow. Be prepared for tomorrow. But don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow might come and it might not. Today is all we have. And you know what the worst thing is about worry? It takes us out of the present. It ruins today. It keeps us preoccupied with the future. We can't focus on what we're doing because our mind is elsewhere. And unfortunately, this is the reality that is defining so many people's lives today. Distracted and preoccupied and scared and worried. Or as Henry Nouwen says, you have an address, but you're not home. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live a life where I'm afraid all the time. I don't want to live a life where I can't be present for my wife and for my children uh, because I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do next or what might go wrong. I, I don't want to live like that, and I know you don't either. <clears throat> but, but it takes focus and intentionality to be present and to live life one day at a time. We have a... Um, we have a, a couple in this church that we've been praying for over the past few weeks. And um, a, a couple of weeks ago, they gave birth to a, uh, to a baby boy, but they knew that, that it was going to be an uphill uh, battle for them. And, and their little boy didn't make it after he was, his, was born. But Sarah Kate and Chip Hooper um, uh, wrote something, and, and Sarah Kate asked me to share it. They had a service. Donovan did a service yesterday out at Mount Olivet. Uh, for, their, for their son, Pierce. But this is what Sarah Kate wanted to share. She said, to our Woodmont family, first, I want to say that I love you all. Your prayers, your concern, your caring, and your thoughtful notes and your unwavering support for me and Chip has been tremendous during this most difficult time. Everyone has been asking what they can do to help. It was only after spending time with a friend today who asked me the same question, that an answer hit me so clearly. It was a message, I think, from God, and he asked that I share it with you. The most helpful thing that you can do for us and to honor our precious peers is to share God's love with everyone you know. Become a better listener, a more intuitive friend, a more patient mother, father, sibling, co-worker. Stop when feeling frustrated and thank God for your joys. <clears throat> Take a moment to spread God's hope to others every day. Love more and more often and open up when you feel like shutting down. Share your hurts with those close to you and allow them to carry you when you feel too broken to move. Always embrace the opportunity to help someone, even if it's someone you don't know. In the short time since we lost our son, we have been exposed to all of these deeply challenging yet beautiful life lessons. Loss will always be a part of us, but so will living. Thank you again for your numerous prayers and unconditional support. Your love for us as a church community has renewed hope, our hope, and it continues to shower us with blessings every day. 
We are truly humbled and inspired by you all. In Christ's love, Sarah Kate, Chip. Taking an incredibly difficult situation and letting it remind you and challenge others to live every day in the present, to live every day and to love the people who are in your life because you simply don't know how long you might have. Know yourself. Learn to be grateful. Differentiate between what you can and can't control and live your life one day at a time because all we have is today. At the end of the day, excessive worry does not accomplish anything. It ruins a lot of things. And it's a reminder that all of us need to have more faith and more trust in God. Amen.